there. This is the Cory Doctorow podcast, and this is Cory Doctorow. And uh, if I sound a little punchy, it's because I just got off an overnight flight from Philadelphia, uh, and I am in fact quite punchy. <laughs> wow, it's been a it's been a long couple of weeks on tour. Haven't had a full night's sleep in about two weeks, but uh, it was an amazing tour. It was so nice to see all of you folks. Um, everywhere I went, I just met the most incredible people and had the most incredible time. Well, if you listen to this feed, you've, you've heard some of that audio. And uh, I've just come back from Philadelphia where I was at PhilCon, uh, the Philadelphia Science Fiction Convention, where I was one of the special guests or guests of honor. I forget how they phrased it. Uh, and I just wanted to take a moment here to thank some of the people that I met there for making it really a special event. First, of course, the, the convention committee, who were just superbly organized. I mean, fandom are incredibly organized. It's just amazing how well organized they are. And also to uh, the command line, uh, who came and interviewed me for a podcast. It's always a pleasure to see him face-to-face and to talk to him. Uh, he's, uh, he's done some amazing stuff over the years with me, and uh, it was great to sit down and chat with him. I also wanted to thank my old Clarion classmates, who I had a chance to see while I was there. If you're listening to this, guys, it was so nice to see you again. And of course, my old Clarion students, who showed up at an uns and an unsuspected gaggle, a great horde of them, uh, without uh, without my knowing that they were due, and I got to see them all, and it was wonderful. Uh, and I also got to sit down briefly with the uh, um, Science Fiction Writers of America president, Russell Davis, and um, have a little chat, and uh, boy, is he ever a good egg. So it was an altogether success. Um, and the tour was a great success and a great deal of fun. I, um, I found the missing piece, of the outline for Pirate Cinema, the young adult novel I'm going to write next uh, about um, copy-fighting freegan anarchist squatters running through the streets of London. Um, and I, I, that was thanks to my friend um, Emily in Toronto, Emily Herson, who gave me that one last missing piece that will be the frame around which everything else is built on a late-night walk down Queen Street. Uh, and um, I also stopped in, speaking of forthcoming books, I stopped in at Tor and got the cover to For the Win, at least the draft cover to For the Win. So now I've seen both the British and the American one. They both are just superb. So all told, a great, great trip. Now, as I say, I'm quite punchy and I need to go home and do some laundry before it's my turn to go get the baby and see her and then my wife after too long an absence. So I'm going to read you a brief, but uh, I hope um, pleasurable excerpt from the story I'm working on right now, The Martian Chronicles, which I'm writing for Jonathan Strawn's young adult Mars anthology. They played the liftoff countdown through the PA in the cabin, and at first we all laughed and counted down with it like it was New Year's Eve, 10, 9, 8, but by 4, no one was counting along. The whole ship was rumbling like a dragon, shaking slightly, feeling full of potential, like it had legs coiled underneath it and it was getting ready to jump which it was. And when it did, three, we would be underway on a one-way journey to an alien world and we would never see the green hills of Earth again. At two, I started crying, really bawling, even though I couldn't tell you why. Screw the Earth anyway, the crummy old planet with its environmental belly aching, its teeming anthills of povs and refugees and crazy religion people with their suicide bombs. But it was Earth, my Earth, my homeworld, and... One, 
I wasn't the only one crying. We were all sobbing, and the only reason it didn't sound like a nursery school before nap time was that the engines were so damned loud. You couldn't hear it if you threw your head back and screamed as loud as you could. The pov next to me was crying too, and I wondered if his parents were forward or whether he was one of the orphans the Mars charity put on board the ship to show what a great bunch of people they all were. We all were. And then we were boosting, and it was like a thousand hands on every centimeter of me, pushing as hard as they could, even on the back of my throat, on my tongue, on my nose, on my lungs, and it didn't stop. It got worse and worse and worse, and then everything went black. The next thing I knew, the pressure was off, and I seemed to be falling in no particular direction. I had just enough time to open my eyes and see the loose ends of my face mask straps floating around my head and think, free fall. And then my stomach decided to send everything it had up to have a look at the wonder of space travel. I gagged and tried to pitch forward, but the straps held me in. Mars Inc. had anticipated this, of course. Us kiddlies hadn't eaten or drunk anything for 24 hours. The grown-ups ate like hogs, but they had the anti-nausea injections that weren't kids-safe. My stomach was practically empty, except for some stringy green mucus and bile that tasted like, well, it tasted like puke, and it burned in my throat and sinuses. A little escaped my lips and floated up my nose and back down my throat, and I started to choke. I wasn't the only one. Lots of people were making gagging noises and choking noises. The blob of puke was lodged in my windpipe, and I could only get whistling sips of air past it, and I was seeing stars. There weren't any space attendants nearby, and even though I was mashing the call button, I couldn't hear anyone rushing to my aid. Then there were small calloused fingers at my straps, undogging my shoulders, arms, wrists, forehead, so that I could lean forward, the falling feeling worse than ever, my stomach churning. A small, strong fist thumped me between the shoulders, and I coughed convulsively, and the puke was back in my mouth, and I spat it out and saw it wobble away like a jellyfish. It was only then that I saw whose small hands had been on me. The Pov, who had somehow slipped his bonds and had hooked his foot through one of his straps so that he was able to maneuver while floating above me. He smiled at me as my puke jellyfish hit him in the chest, leaving a splotch like a greasy paintball hit. You okay, he said. He had a funny convenience store clerk accent, clipped but somehow liquid. Fine, I said, and it came out with a rasp for my burning throat. He had drifted so that he was upside down, his face bobbing centimeters from mine. Thanks. It was disorienting. He had toothpaste breath. It made me conscious of the fact that my breath smelled like a dead bear's butthole. He put his hand out. Vijay Mukherjee, he said. Brian James Stanley Oglethorpe, I said. He snorted. I was used to that. Blues finished snickering and said, The third... It's true. Great-granddad had been the first converted from Brian, B-R-I-A-N, to Brian, B-R-I-O-N-N, by a marine induction sergeant who couldn't spell, and I was the third to bear his name. It was silly and long and weird, but it was mine, and no one else had a name like it, except Dad and Granddad, of course. I still felt like I was falling, but it wasn't as unpleasant as it had been, and I could see where it would stop feeling like falling and start feeling like flying eventually. Thanks, I said, and sorry, gesturing at his stained shirt. He waved off my apology. Think nothing of it. We're going into space together, my friend. We can't let little things get to us. 
He shook my hand again. He had calloused fingers, but a soft handshake, limp and a little damp. Everyone I knew shook hands like they meant it. But this pov, VJ, had rescued me from my choking and hadn't put up a fuss when I puked on him. A nasty part of me wondered if his slum or whatever wasn't carpeted in worse things than my puke. I could live with a damp handshake. The space attendant finally showed up and demanded to know what we were doing out of our straps and then didn't want to listen when he explained. The spacer, who floated through the air with the greatest of ease, strapped us back in again without missing a word in his lecture on shuttle safety. I turned my head to look at Vijay and I could see that he was doing the same. Thanks again, I said, my voice muffled by my mask, which reeked of barf. He gave me another thumbs up and then we boosted again and were pushed back into the chairs. Debarking at Eagle's Nest Station was a lot simpler than boarding had been on Earth. The space attendants swarmed us and bound us wrist and foot to our neighbors with soft bungee cords and chains of ten kids. Then they simply grabbed the lead kid and towed the whole chain up along the length of the shuttle, through grown-up territory, through the airlock, and into the station's mustering area. We were cut loose, and then each of us was issued a set of one-size-fits-all Velcro gloves and slippers, and we struggled into them, some of us flying off to the low ceiling, which might as well have been the floor, except that no one was standing on it at the moment. It was all pretty chaotic. Every few seconds, ten more colonists came through the airlock, pushing us all farther in, and anyone who wasn't Velcroed down drifted away, and it soon became clear that there just wouldn't be enough room in the mustering area for all of us, but more people started coming out, and I couldn't find Mom or Dad in the press. And then Vijay plucked his way along the carpet to me and said, Come on, it's too crowded on this wall. Let's stand on one of the others. Which sounded like a crazy plan, but I couldn't say exactly why, so we pushed off together and grabbed the ceiling with toes and hands laughing as we skidded and ripped around until we were standing upside down relative to everyone else, though I still felt like I was falling in every direction at once. At first people stared at us in that familiar, hey you stupid kids, cut it out way, but as the room grew more and more crowded, many of the other kids and then some of the grown-ups joined us on the ceiling. I knew some of the other kids from orientation. There was the big, butchy, red-haired boy who liked to mouth off, but who was looking as pukey as I felt. There was the shy girl with the incredible movie star face and its big, wide-set violet eyes, who wasn't looking shy at all now, but was looking frankly and unashamedly at the upside-down adults below her, peering through the seaweed tangle of hair that floated around her head. There was the dreamy girl who never turned her headphones off. You could tell, even though they were implants, because she was always doing this head-bobbing thing to the rhythm, now wide awake and plucking her way across the ceiling on her hands, feet brushing the hair of the adults below. I spotted mom and dad just before the space attendants pushed through the last tensum and then dogged the airlock. As it sealed, the air pressure in the room changed slightly, and I realized with a shiver that the funny-looking door I'd passed through wasn't just a door, it was a door between two spaceships, and the only thing that had stopped me from being sucked into space where my lungs and eyeballs would explode while my body turned into a freeze-dried popsicle had been some accordion metal, rubber, and plastic. And now that was gone, and the shuttle that had lifted us to Eagle's Nest was floating through that same void. That same void that I was going to spend the next six months sailing through in a tin can whose thin skin would be all that stood between me and total ass-plosion. A space attendant standing sideways, sticking out of the wall like a thumbtack, touched an invisible button on her workspace and a tune-out whistle sounded. <whistles> Colonists, attention please. 
Her voice was amplified and came from every corner of the room. It was the same system they used in orientation. The room's cameras knew where the speaker was and tuned an array of directional mics to follow them so that you could speak without the inconvenience of a mic. Colonists, she said again, when the chatter barely dimmed. It was as loud as a rocket engine. Well, not quite. From all the talking. She twiddled an invisible knob, using some hand jive the ship's computer understood. Colonists, she said again, her voice so loud it actually made me want to go to the toilet as it vibrated the poo I hadn't realized was lurking up my colon. The silence was thunderous. My ears rang. Welcome to the eagle's nest, she said. I am Laney, just Laney, as in Laney, Laney, no complainy. I am your mommy for the next six glorious months aboard the Eagle, and it will be my job to head off any potential strife before it rises to the level of complaint. We live by a strict no-whining ethic on Mars. That's why you signed up to go, and it's never too soon to start practicing. She gestured at the kids and the few adults on the ceiling. I see that some of you have gotten into the no-complainy state of mind and solve your own problems by your own wits. Good people of upside-down land, I salute you. She ripped off a perfect Navy salute. Her uniform was vaguely naval, though Mars Colony didn't have a Navy or an Army. It had a security force, of course, contracted out of the colonial fees and charged with enforcing our mutual code of conduct and respect. But Laney didn't talk like one of the meatheads who worked security around the Mars Inc. properties. She talked like a Marsy, smart and confident and assertive, like my parents and all their friends. Now, we are just about ready to move you from the nest straight into the Eagle. We've been making her ready for days now, and she is just in her final inspection from the International Space Agency. She squeaked out International Space Agency in a pinched cartoony voice, the way every Martian did. No one liked the pencil pushers at the ISA with their stupid rules. And then we can get you aboard. We didn't anticipate this delay, and unfortunately, there's no way we can let you wander around the nest. This is a working job site, and there's no way you could be safely permitted to move about freely, much as we'd like to. She drew a deep breath and said in one long word, Mars Inc. deeply regrets this inconvenience, and grinned. More than a few people chuckled with her. Phrases like, deeply regrets the inconvenience, were the sort of thing we were going to Mars to escape. It shouldn't be very long. In the meantime, think happy thoughts, talk amongst yourselves, mingle. These are the people you'll be spending the next six months with. These are the people you'll be sharing a planet with for the rest of your lives. You've been listening to the Cory Doctor Podcast, licensed under Creative Commons Attribution, non-commercial, share-alike, US 3.0. Or as Woody Guthrie put it in another context, this song is copyrighted in the US under seal of copyright 154085 for a period of 28 years, and anyone caught singing it without our permission will be a mighty good friend of ours, because we don't give a dern. Publish it, write it, sing it, swing to it, yodel it, we wrote it, that's all we wanted to do. Many thanks to John Taylor Williams for mastering. That's Rynex Studio, W-R-Y-N-E-C-K Studio at gmail.com. John Taylor Williams is a full-time self-employed audio engineer, producer, composer, and sound designer. In his free time, he makes beer, jewelry, odd musical instruments, and furniture. He likes to meditate, to read, and to cook. Talk to you next week. <laughs>